You are listening to the Enormo Cast. A couple years ago, Black Diamond introduced the Ultralight Camelot, the baddest cam the world has ever seen. And frankly, you'd think they dropped the mic right there. But like the over-caffeinated squirrels they are, the climbing nerds at BD went back and redesigned the old Camelots to introduce the new C4 to your quiver. They made the C4 lighter, broadened the trigger for chubby knuckles, and the Big Daddy sport a snazzy trigger keeper for smooth racking and deployment when the going gets wide. And then, probably after the 12th espresso, they did some little tweaks that only core climbers would notice when desperately run out and skittering like trapped weasels. You know the feeling. The emergency disrupt system is now activated. So avoid the quaking and the beaded brow sweat by checking out the new C4s at blackdiamondequipment.com or better yet, Get them under your own chubby knuckles at a gear shop near you. So I've been laying on the TC Pro from Sportiva for the last few months, like that annoying guy at the gym who's still trying to convince you that trad climbing is the coolest thing you can do on a rope. Spoiler alert, it is actually. It is still the coolest thing. But what if you're like, Chris, I don't climb slabs like some muscle-bomb bonobo. I'm more like a gazelle. You know, if a gazelle had opposable thumbs and a moderately popular Instagram feed. Well then, my little Bovaday, look no further than the Futura from Sportiva. Refined by the world's best climbers, the Futura excels in steep precision footwork, and the no-edge technology gives them unparalleled sensitivity, just like you. So if you want to go from prey to predator on those steep sport climbs and boulders, check out a pair of Futuras at Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold it. I'll see. You really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a frayed end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the EnormaCast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the EnormaCast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is March 24th, about 10 o'clock here in Colorado, and this is episode 172 of the EnormaCast, part two of the conversation with alpinist Mark Twite. And if you've turned up here on part two without having listened to part one, I would recommend you go back and do that. This episode stands alone if you have some background in Mark Twite. But we're going to pop in right in the middle of the conversation. So it'd be better use of your time to check out part one, which should be previous right there in your feed. All right, we'll go ahead and wait.
Okay, you're back. The magic of podcast time travel. We waited, now you're here. We're all on the same page. And before we delve into part two, if you guys are interested in what Mark's up to now, you can go to his sort of media conglomeration website. He He's not even exactly sure what he's up to over there, but the website is nonprofit.media, and that's profit as in P-R-O-P-H-E-T. So nonprofit.media, you can get linked to his podcast, the Dissect Podcast over there. You can also check out his new book, Refuge, which just came out in February, a compilation of words and images by Mark. And I think there's some other stuff over there, but it, but it's kind of a unique conglomeration of things that they're getting started over there at nonprofit.media. So that's where you can check out what Mark's up to these days. And I think that's about it. We pick up here. Mark on part one had just finished telling his epic story of Nanga Parbat being lost on the face, dropping some ropes, finding a pack, being saved by that pack and getting down only to start up again just a couple weeks later. And we move here to Alaska. That's where we start off on part two. So you went on to climb in Alaska later, is that right? Yeah. I mean, and that's where like the the fast and light really, I mean, there's a couple of cents in the Alaska range where it got pushed to what, at least I think you found to be the, the end of it. I mean, when Scott and I eventually, so he, when he and I climbed the deprivation in there goes the neighborhood um, in the end of 93 in the Alps, we're like, okay, the, this is, th- this is great. This is great. The Alps are awesome. You know, I was done there. He was a visitor. So we need to, you know, I thought, okay, there's, there, there, what's the next step? We're not going to take this level of technical difficulty to the Himalayas right away. There's got to be an interim logical point, And that happens to be Alaska. And it's easy to get to, turns out. It's maybe a little bit too easy to get to. So 94, he and I went up, you know, with, you know, with the plan, you know, the standard Alaska plan. It was, oh, yeah, we're going to do a new route on Mount Hunter. And then we're probably going to just, uh, bla- you know, blast up the infinite spur. And then we'll probably do the, you know, finish off on the casino because... You know, because we got six weeks, you know, why isn't that possible? <laughs> then the Alaska factor kicks in and then, uh, we end up in, you know, waiting in base camp for three weeks or bad weather or four weeks or whatever the fuck it was. And, you know, a bunch of shit happened. Fi- you know, we tried to do, we started up the route that, um, would become that same season, the wall of shadows, right. that great child of Michael Kennedy did. We started up that. There was a pitch where Scott was like, that's as close as I've ever come in to take like a 200 foot fall before. And I mean, just super thin ice and, 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 and it was out of, it looked in condition, but it was not to get uh, certainly in the way that we were interested in doing. Cause we were not interested in like the way that Michael and Greg eventually did it, which involved, you know, a bit more heavy lifting, shall we say. Right. And <laughs> so, and, and, but we realized that, 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 that was, that was, you know, the, the fault was with us, with our decision, like looking at the terrain and thinking we could blast it, you know, right. you know, in, 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 in the way that, you know, uh, when, uh, Benoit Grison and Yves Tedeschi did what was the French route on the, on the left side of the, of, um, I think they did it in six days. Um, but they fucking just, they, you know, they took, they did what they do in the Alps and, uh, and we thought we could do that 
slightly to the right on more technical terrain, but it was, but we weren't seeing correctly right. in a way. So we were looking at terrain that the, 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 the lightweight tactics that our lightweight tactics could not be adapted to. So we had to fail in a way we came down more bad weather, blah, blah, blah. Look at the right side of the buttress and the route that became deprivation. We're like that one we can do. There's enough easy terrain interspersed with hard technical climbing that we can probably do this really fast. And we had just, and we had decided that it was going to take 72 hours round trip. And that's exactly what we did it in, but only because we didn't really sleep the second night. And, uh, and, and to me, that was sort of the expression. Okay. We're going to do some hard, and there were some, what I would consider technical pitches, certainly for 94 and certainly for the mountains and that situation, even though you can see the airstrip, still pretty fucking scary, you know, shit place. And that was sort of where we applied that vision. But we were so fried after that when we tried to, we were trying to convince ourselves to go over to Four Acre afterwards and we were just fucking cooked. So the whole idea of like doing a new route on, or, you know, whatever on the big three never happened. You know, Colin can do it, but that's now and he's him. Right. So, um, so, so, so after that and, and that experience, I mean, there were a couple of other things that led to, you know, a, a somewhat depleted emotional state after uh, after deprivation. Well, what um, <laughs> what was that? The same season that 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 uh, I mean, Greg and 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 uh, Michael showed up. Yeah, did did the Wall of Shadows. Yeah, okay. So because I've talked to him about that just recently, yeah. and um, it, it it was a funny image because he talked about how you know you guys everybody shows up in that same spot whether you go yeah. up the West Bud or whatever, and and you guys like crawled off to the sort of the cool kids camp like yep. a couple hundred yards away. Oh yeah. And I mean it sounds like like the sort of like the who's who of like Alaska climbing was there Fuck, at that there, moment. There was a I night. Mean, he thinks Jay Smith was there. He maybe I mean he was just rolling this off his head so he yeah. doesn't really know, but he named off some names and and uh and, and Fuck, Pat Timpson was probably there guiding somebody. Jay, I don't think yeah. I, I don't recall Jay showing up. Conrad showed up, right? Um, you know, but he was off to do something else, and um, and that was a uh, that was a beautiful sort of moment there with Con- that. I, uh, I I just want to get him on the podcast and help him remember about the like he he was pulling like a, a North Face one piece suit, brand new out of the bag, you know, he just flown out of the glacier and right. you know whatever, and somebody had not um, made the lower part of the zipper a two way zipper. It, so it was basically like a, oh, it's a one piece suit, but you can't, you're not going to be able to pee. Right. So wherever you're going, hope you're not hydrated and just watching this whole thing. And, and, uh, um, it was a beautiful sort of community in that, in, in that way. And there was, there was a night and Kent, Michael has pictures of this for sure. Cause he sent me some dupes from this and I wish I had an audio recording. Yeah, and this no, is no, like, he, he, he corroborates this, this, uh, this lost, fantasy audio tape oh in some giant God. snow cave you guys had built or so ken wiley um <laughs> and joe josephson were there yeah that's right and, that's another name he mentioned and uh so and, and i and and i can't remember who was you know and steve massioli was there and greg and michael and myself and scott and i and i and and, and so and, and ken you know the bad weather they're just like fucking digging the snow cave they made this gigantic like i don't know how big it was but it was enough for all of us to to be in there and and i was at a point where I, I mean it was that night was fucking amazing like whatever conversations happen you know it's it maybe it's good that there's no recording maybe it's like 
because <laughs> it wasn't I mean, it very was, good after all. <laughs> like, <laughs> I I, th- I think it was probably pretty good, but but um, but maybe not. You know, right. who knows? There was a lot of drugs. There was a lot of alcohol. There was a lot of fucking repressed. Like we were just trying to keep the beasts in check because of the you know the bad weather. Right. And at that that um, time also. And and when you read the third issue of Rays, there you will. Where I wrote about this rescue that had happened earlier, uh, uh-huh. slightly earlier before those guys showed up. That um, there were some guys on Mount Hunter, and um, something had happened, and they were fucked up, and they wanted a rescue. And Scott and I were in base camp, and and uh, when the radio call came in, and Annie called us over, and I started talking to him on the radio, and like trying to get some more information about that, you know, the whole thing, and this and. Uh, and there's part of it. I'll just, I'll just, I'll put it out here because, because the, the truth of that rescue has never actually been, you know, I have been. People have heard rumors, uh, maybe. Anyway, th- one other guy was in base camp with us, um, so they were on the uh, up above the Northwest Basin. They had been trying to do the West Ridge of Mount Hunter, and either an avalanche or a cornice broke or a fall. You know, some guys, two guys were of the party of five were pretty fucked up, and. Um, and they were suggesting a helicopter. The weather was too bad for the helicopter, and 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 uh, and I was um, I was probably pro- when the radio call came in. I was probably two hours into um, uh, you know, a couple of hits of LSD, and uh, um, so I was talking to him on the. I'm totally fine with this because at that time I was somewhat experienced with the uh, as a psychonaut, if you want to call it that, um, <laughs> and uh, and. I was, you know, talked to him and I'm this and that, and we're looking at the weather and talk to the park service and, you know, maybe they're going to come. They want to kind of look at it with a fixed wing first before they commit the helicopter and this and that. And I'm just like, Scott, we need to go. Scott looks at me and for, for, you know, looks deep into my pupils and is like, are you okay? Knowing the answer. Cause I've, you know, he and I've been in that situation before. And I've said, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm real. I'm okay. And I know exactly where they are. <laughs> And Scott's just like, okay, Dwight knows, but if he knows where they are, he knows, you know, I'm fucking going with that. One other guy in base camp had skis, this guy, Mike Vanderbeek. And so we grabbed him and we, you know, after a little bit of a confrontational conversation with, uh, with one of the park rangers who had finally flown, you know, they finally flown in and they're, and, and, uh, I remember this, this point, Scott's looking at the, and he's talking to the guy and he's like, well, what are you guys going to do? We're going to go fucking rescue those guys. And if you're not willing to like ski out there and front point up 2,500 fucking feet and grab those guys and bring them down, then get the fuck out of the way. And then we went. Right. And I don't know, you know, Vanderbeek was, you know, like fucking total VO2 max effort. Like he's on the back and Scott and I are super fit because we've been like, we've had like four weeks of acclimatization at this point. And, and I've been up the West buttress, not quite to the summit and, and, and that sort of thing. And so we just charge and we're dragging Mike and we get out to the, and, and, like Alaska dusk, whatever. But, and I'm like, I'm just navigating by, you know, sort of sensitivity in a way. Cause I was quite connected to the universe. Right. And uh, anyway, the, the, um, eventually we, we, we roll up on these guys. This storm has now started. So the helicopter's fucking option is out. There's nobody else coming. It's basically up to us. Tahoe Roland and a couple of other guys had like turned up, you know, two or three hours later on snowshoes. Um, and Scott and I had just like, we took a stove and fuel and a little bit of food and one sleeping bag between us because we were just like we're gonna go up and we're gonna fucking bag him and we're gonna drag him down and we get there and those the, and those guys they're a bit more fucked up than than uh than first thought and then they also were not willing to move and scott and i was like oh well this is stupid 
because now we're in this place surrounded by Seracs on three sides and it's fucking snowing an inch an hour. And uh, we get through the night next morning. Now we got to fucking drag these guys down through two feet of new snow. And I was no longer fucking high. And that was the real problem. It's like, like how did I get here? Exactly. This is not my beautiful life. Exactly. This is not my beautiful life. This could this could be really bad. This could get really bad. And uh, it, 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 uh, the, oh, the, you know, the end of this you know st- story is we start like I start you know breaking a trench, being the avalanche poodle basically, and start making a trench so those guys can have something because we don't have a sled or anything we just put these guys in sleeping bags and wrapped them foam pads drag them and uh um and 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 we get them down out of the northwest basin and somewhere on the way back to base camp six you know fresh italians show up and they're like skiing down the glacier singing and it was fucking amazing and i could kind of communicate with them in french so i tied in with them and we're dragging one of the guys and scott and and mike and tahoe and that career they're dragging one of the other guys and and uh um, and all the way back to base camp, you know, I'm just like, I'm just fucking dying um, because the effort is so hard because these dudes are fresh and I've been a fucking up all night or whatever. And the Italians are still, you know, we're dragging the sky and they're singing and we're dragging the sky and they're singing and we get him, get him back and they get in the, and the fixed wing comes eventually and gets him and flies mount anchors in the hospital. And, and, uh, and so that thing that had happened, you know, before Michael and Greg had showed up. And so we had all kinds of like great stories to tell in the snow cave. So I think the snow cave episode would have been <laughs> awesome had it been recorded, but you know, it's just like, you know, lost in the archives and, uh, but it was an, inc- but that was an incredible experience. And one, and certain, and one of the last times that I saw Steve Massioli, um, before he got killed on, on the North buttress of Hunter and, and, uh, um, I, uh, yeah, Alaska's fucking fantastic place, but we learned on Hunter that we could go for like, I think by the time we'd finally got back to base camp, we'd been going for 43 hours nonstop. And that was the key. There was like combining the fitness and the technical skill to apply to these other routes. And that's how uh, really all the, you know, the, the single push stuff. We started to realize like, Oh wow. Well, you like 24 hours nonstop is no problem. Probably in 36. Yeah. You're a little tired, but you're still making good decisions. I suspect, and this was my hypothesis, later proof proofs true that at forty eight hours you get you you shouldn't be making um, critical decisions anymore. Right, and that was the Slovak Direct, right? Yeah, yeah, and that was into the sixties. Um, a little bit of sleep with a cat nap. Sort of, yeah, sort of cat napping because we had because we had figured out at that I mean, point you're going to cat nap. <laughs> whether you <laughs> might whether you like it or you, not, you might actually be climbing while right. you're cat napping and right. wake up and like whoa shit i'm here it's like yeah um, driving to the mall when you don't remember it all yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and that was i mean by the by the time all was said and done you know from from crossing the bergschrund to you know climbing the face and getting down to the fourteen thousand foot camp um that we were on the move for 63 hours okay you know with with some catnaps but we had figured out at that point that three was like and, and this 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 whole process if we talk about you know going from the alps to the early stuff in, in Alaska, um, so 94, 95, 98. Um, and, then re- and, and, uh, and in 98, actually, I'd, I'd been, I'd climbed the west face of Huntington with Bill Belcourt and, um, and then linked up with Steve. And uh, we had our eyes on the Slovak direct. And, and it, w- it was, you know, he had um, he'd already done some. I think he had maybe come from King Peak with Jojo uh, for that. But anyway, 
it, it was too late in the season. The weather was shit. We flew around. We looked, I mean, we flew up the East Fork with Paul um, from TAT and like zigzagged up, you know, basically up that South face and realized like, okay, this is more than us at this point. It's too warm. It, and I think we need, you know, at least one. And, and I had thought like, okay, two teams, two worked pretty good on Nanga Parbat. We should try that. Um, so the idea, the original idea was um, Steve and myself and Scott and Rolo. And, and then eventually through the negotiation, Rolo was like, I, I, you know, it's not, doesn't fit exactly with what I want to do. And, and so it ended up being the, you know, Steve and Scott and I, and, uh, and we tried to acclimatize on crossing whatever for a variety of reasons. We ended up, we, we started up this, the face with the, with the idea that, okay, we're going to get it done in 48 hours because we're acclimatized. We've been to the summit of McKinley already. Um, we've gotten down, we've gotten rest and we rested. We had a, you know, we had a, had a our, you know, our base camp that we could in, at, the, at the airstrip, we always retreat to that. It cached 11,000 feet on the normal route that we were going to come down to where we had extra skis, food, fuel, etc. And so we basically set up these, these points of safety from which we could launch. So if you, but if you look at like, you go, yeah, we climbed this thing in 60 hours nonstop. It wasn't like we flew a fucking plane and landed at the bottom, climbed for 60 hours nonstop and then, you know, finished it. Right. Like weeks of preparation and fucking gear all over the mountain so that we could go as light as we could. Right. Like, okay, I'm leaving behind this point of safety. We're at the base of the South face is like, we've got our skis, we've got tents, we've got fuel, you know, cause we ski to the, to the South face with 10 days of food and fuel. Weather got good after that, you know, basically that it was good when we got there and it then after skiing up, we rehearsed one day, we rehearsed the first thousand feet to know how long it was going to take and made our plan from there. And then the day after that we launched and we started, we were, we were pretty light. We had um, two stoves and 22 ounces of fuel and a titanium pot for each uh, rack, whatever cam, some screws doesn't, you know, two ropes and the, the total weight but between us, the total weight was, uh, I mean, we each had a, a puffy coat and a pair of spare mittens. I think we probably had a pair of spare goggles, but that was it. Uh, 15, 53 pounds total um, between us, and 18 of that was, uh, at the start, was water. So we had three liters each um, to start, and that was, that was the plan. It was like, we're going to do 12-hour blocks of climbing, and then we'll stop and melt, melt enough and drink enough so that we every, every time... We start a twelve-hour block. We will have had three hour, three liters of water during the during the, the two or three-hour stop while we're melting all the snow, um, and then we're going to start with three. Th- those those numbers now, they, yeah, they seem about right. And I think we had we had enough food between gels, freeze-dried food, halva, and you know olive oil and shit like that for uh, for about forty-eight hours. And the and the fuel the fuel for the stoves lasted exactly that long. Unfortunately, we were not done. And so if the question, if, 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 if the, if the point of that, of like, if the objective was to answer the question, how light is too light, we almost found out, but no one wants to find out because then you're dead. Right. But that was really what we were exploring is like, how much can we get away with in these, like, I guess an Arctic, Arctic environment. I mean, it's, it's not warm and it's relatively high and it's not easy climbing. I mean, there was grade six waterfall pitch on that route. I mean, it it's a it was a pretty interesting and very I mean very demanding sort of thing. And uh, and it was the last hard thing that I ever did. Right. And so you finished. I mean, you the F hour forty eight came and went. You're out of 
yeah, we're out of food and fuel, um, variety, and uh, we're, we're still and and we I think we had some six or nine, whatever you know. We had some liters of lukewarm water, basically, right. and no more fuel, and that had to get us up over the top and down to our cash at eleven because we didn't want to stop at fourteen because the whole point was like we got to do this you know somewhat autonomously or right. whatever. And uh, you know, keep so you mean stop where other people are? Yeah, where the where the park service has their medical right. camp, and it's like okay. the big ass fucking camp on. So the, you're just going to march Park past that. We're we, we're pretty sure we're just going to put the blinders on and like fuck those people. We're just going to go because we know that we have you know food and fuel and skis at eleven. <laughs> and uh, how much further time wise is that? Yo, fuck out. It, it's it, it would depend on getting around Windy Corner, right. but it'd probably be another three hours <laughs> from from fourteen. Sure, to get down to there. Sure. And, uh, um, so we're not yet, we have not yet joined the, like the, the Slovak route stays independent of the Cassine Ridge, um, all the way to the summit on this sort of steep snow slope, whatever. And there's some crevasses in it and maybe a bit of technical climbing at the top, but we decide that, okay, we're basically, we're going to get, we're going to get off this. We're going to try and join the Cassine, um, which is sort of more known terrain. And I think it's going to be safer, um, uh, Somewhere around seventeen five, maybe or eighteen. I don't. I don't. I don't know exactly right. where what elevation we would have joined it at, but we made that decision. And uh, um, and, and after the, the sort of last brew stop where we ran out of f- fuel, um, I was leading sort of the last technical pitches, and I got to the top of the one. And I'm just like, you guys, fucking unclip from the anchor, you know, climb with me. I got you're trying to get the guys to simul climb, and they're like, what about the anchors? I was just like, fucking leave them. We're done because I'd like gotten broken out of the hard right. stuff and onto you know everything else from there we could climb without the rope and um so they, they come up we end up i think we joined the hour the, the cassine ridge at sort of like hour 53 ish it was somewhere between 53 and 55 um and then uh and we and we get up onto the cassine and we had we had made a decision and this is and, and ethically it's it's not something i'm not proud of but it's but it is also something which is to, to me was a a demonstrative moment of like ethics you can hold to your ethics until you're about to lose your life or you can see it potentially happening and then all ideas of like clean of leave no trace and all that shit goes out the window right and in a and and in a way that's i'm not saying it's an and i will never make an excuse it's an indefensible thing but basically you know to finish those those last hard pitches you know basic and put in a bunch of anchor like i probably put like a six point fucking equalized anchor into the rock and um you know we left one of the ropes there the stoves were out of food and were out of fuel etc so we put everything in a a pack and that rope coiled the rope up nicely (laughs) and and left it so we didn't have to carry it because i was just like i don't know if we're gonna fucking make it we need to jettison as much weight as we possibly can and and that was a decision i would never have made in in sort of like six hours deep or five hours you know or 12 hours deep or even you know 24 or whatever but it's like an ethical thing yeah i'm not fucking i'm not fucking proud but i was but i realized like i can answer now how far do i need to be pushed before i will compromise my ethics i'm like yeah pretty far but not as far as others right certainly so we joined the casino mark westman and another guy and i don't know who he was with but they had just climbed the casino and they were like, they were far enough ahead of us that 
there was no hope of us catching them and that we would have good tracks because they were just breaking trail in the snow. And so we got super lucky there. It would have been another, it would have been more involved to get off. Um, uh, and, and so we, fo- we followed their steps and, and basically up to the top of the Hilton horn. We'd already been to the summit of McKinley that I mean, I'd been there twice that year already. And, um, and so I was just like, you guys, let's turn left. We could go to the summit. We could fucking, you know, it's part of my deal though, is not to go to the summit sometimes. And so we turned left and went down and descended the normal route and, uh, got down to the 14,000 foot camp. And, you know, there was talk on the radio has been happening because Paul Roderick has flown, flown by and he'd seen us and he, you know, how high we were and this and that, and because they were kind of concerned. Um, and, and, but he, but Roderick had also said something on the radio, like basically, this is the best weather window I've seen in the Alaska range pretty much since I've ever been here. If you guys don't fucking climb this thing, you're hiking out. Right. Like I'm not gonna, I'm not come flying to base camp to pick you up. This is like if you can't get this done in perfect conditions, dude, you guys are on your own. Um, so we walked into 14. Every you know enough you know Park Service people heard what you know, had sort of transpired in the previous 48 hours or whatever. <laughs> So, um, Meg, there was a ranger, um, and, and she was on patrol. So she was, you know, the, 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 the park service, you know, uh, appointee at the time at sure. 14, she comes out and she's just, um, sees us and we're, and all we wanted to do is get a little water, you know, we're just like, okay, we're going to compromise. We're going to get a little water. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a fucking slippery slope, man. <laughs> No, you're just like <laughs> there's like people with trays of donuts, just like you're uh, knocking uh, the trays out of their hands. No, no. <laughs> Are they gluten free? <laughs> you know, whatever. Like so, so we get there. We're just like, can, can we get? We're out of fuel. Could you know? Just get a liter of water each, or whatever. It doesn't even have to be hot. You know, like no, bring us cold water because we're tough. Right. Um, it wasn't even. It was like, can, can we just get a little water? We can get down to our cash or whatever. And it makes like, hey. How do you guys feel about some toasted spam and cheese sandwiches? <laughs> and and in the moment, like, and then it was over. Right. It was just like I I, I smelled the food cooking. Yeah. You know, Steve You're smells. An you know, like we're just fucking done. And we're just like, all right, fuck it. We're gonna stop. We're gonna we're gonna accept help. And uh, and so we ate the sandwiches. <laughs> and then they're, hey, do you guys want to stay here tonight? We're like. Uh, we don't really have any bivy gear, and they're like, "Well, the medical clamshell over there. There's um, there's two cots. There's um, there's two sleeping bags, but there's also like uh, a couple thermorests, and there's this like massive down jacket and a pair of down pants or whatever. And right. you guys can fucking sort it out, right? We're like, ah, motherfucker. And so then it ends up in this, you know, game of kung fu fighter, grizzly bear, and cowboy, which is like rock paper scissors, right. but for cool guys. Um, uh, you know, to see who gets what. And so, so I, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but, you know, Kung Fu guy kicks the gun out of Cowboy guy's hand and the bear gets <laughs> shot by the Cowboy guy. And, um, you know, but Kung Fu guy gets eaten by the bear. And I don't remember, but I ended up on the, with the down pants and the jacket on the floor. All right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then, you know, after whatever, uh, t- you know, 10 hours of, you know, ibuprofen induced sleep or whatever, um, we get up the next day, get down to 11, grab our shit, ski all the way down to base camp. And then, and then, and then the, basically the party started. And, um, and, and that, that party basically, you know, for me was like, okay, this is, we're having the wake for my climbing career. Cause, uh-huh. and I mean, I didn't know it then. Um, 
but realized very quickly there within a month after climbing that route that I'm done and I'm, I'm, I'm like, I will never do a hard thing again because the next logical step is to take single push climbing to the Himalayas. Uh-huh. And I had too much holding me to the ground. Like I wanted to live. I really was like, I was quite, my life was quite good at that point. And, um, and I realized like, I, you know, that's the next logical step and I'm not going to repeat myself and I'm not going to be the guy who's satisfied with like doing the classics later in life or whatever. And, um, and it was a moment where I'm just like, all right, Steve, this is Scott and I passing the torch, man. You gotta, you gotta take this over and eventually, and, and it, and it, and it took a little bit, but eventually, you know, when he climbed the new route on K7 in 44 hours round trip in Pakistan, you know, that was the next step. And then right. shortly thereafter, it was, um, it was, you know, Naga Parbat with Vince and, and, uh, and, and to, to, to watch that, to just look at, you know, okay, I've, I, I, I contributed to sort of an evolutionary chain in a way, or a, a chain of, of events. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty proud of actually having been part of that. What, what's uh what's your relationship with climbing now uh haven't been that was your career we just did your career <laughs> we just kind of did a career yeah yeah, yeah. so i mean in, in in the sense and i say that i quit climbing you know in 2000 after that route but um but i was involved but for basically for the next nine years i was involved in training military right and we did a lot of cold weather high altitude training i did two trips to mckinley where you know you know one of them was I think the 2009 trip was great because um, these guys came from sea level and we got them up and down the normal route um, in 13 days round trip from Virginia beach. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I mean, it, 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 it was an interesting thing. You know, a lot of the, a lot of what I learned in the mountains turned out to have great parallels and sort of universality to it in, in a way to um, help teach others in, to in different situations. Right. And, uh, so my, so the, the, you know, I, I climbed McKinley again. I mean, I, I went uh, in 2008, I went to the top from 14 twice in three days with, cause it was a trip that I, we had uh Rolo, it was Rolo and I, um, we, and we had eight Navy personnel and I was like, dude, I can't do four to one to the summit, you know, from 14. It's just, it's just not possible. So we, um, so by the time we got everybody acclimatized, um, so Roland and I each took, you know, two, you know, in one first period of kind of good weather, we're just like, look, this weather looks stable. We'll take, we'll blast with these guys. We'll come down, we'll take a rest day and we'll go with you guys, mm-hmm. you know, just total hubris bullshit, you know, happening, but that's exactly what happened. Um, first day we get, we went up and, and, uh, we, we, I think with those guys, we did round trip and, you know, from 14 to the top and back in 17 hours, took a rest day, then went up and, um, the two guys that, uh, Rolo had, one of them got sick and bailed low. Another guy got sick a little bit higher, like got up to eighteen five or something like that. And they turned around and um, the two guys that I, uh, Heath and Dave, uh, we went to the summit and back in uh, fifteen hours round trip or something on that on, on that thing. And and the, the 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 interesting piece sort of to all of that for me was that you know we did we cl- we climbed a lot with those guys um in, in and and consistently with very with a lot of the the same guys over and over again taking them you know from basically not knowing how to climb at all to you know trips to Colorado and Utah and there was you know there's a trip in the Alps there was a trip in a trip in Chile um Vince and Bean and Rolo um 
got a bunch of the guys up Aconcagua uh, on a trip that I couldn't, you know, go on. And so we got these guys, they got to do a lot of really cool shit. Um, and we got to do cool shit because of it, you know, to mm-hmm. go, you know, do stuff sort of courtesy of the U.S. government. And, and, and in a sense, you know, my opinion, you know, certainly with the, where the operations were happening in the, in the theater at that time was all Afghanistan and a lot of it high altitude and a lot of it, you know, basically having starting later when the enemy got sort of smart and these guys are having to like get dropped off from the, with a helicopter, like 10 K away from the target and make their way through this mountainous terrain, you know, to, to, to do those jobs. And, um, and I, and I think we were able to, you know, deliver, especially, you know, when this later, when the sort of fitness and the nutrition piece came and we're just like, look, we can teach you how you guys, how to be, you know, moving for 24 hours, nonstop, 36 hours, you know, all, all the, these things, like there are certain aspects of this you can control. There's stuff you can't, we can teach you some of the controllable aspects. And, and, uh, um, but later most of those guys, you know, a lot of our guys, you know, when extortion 17 went down in 2011, of the 22 seals that were killed, uh, tw- a dozen of those guys were guys that we had on, you know, a bunch of mountain trips. Hmm. Like guys that I'd cl- been on top of McKinley with, guys, you know, that that we'd, you know, climbed frozen water walls here and taught them how to ski and shit like that. I mean, it was, um, it, and, and it was sort of, in, in a way, it was like a continuation of my climbing career. I'm just like, okay, I'm never going to get away from, you know, having my friends get killed. And like, that's my relationship with climbing. That's what I think of it now in a sense is like, yeah, it was a part of my life that, um, that I, in a way I walked, I mean, I tried to retire earlier cause I'd gone to, I don't know, it was 97 or something. I was in Chamonix on a photo shoot and had dinner with Alan Gersen and Francois Marcini and, and, uh, Andy Parkin. And I was just like, Oh yeah, we're kind of the last men standing of that period. Right. And, uh, it's like, I'm sick of my friends getting killed. So I'm going to stop doing this thing. And, then couldn't quite, you know, heroin addicts. They they always try to quit once before they either finally do or OD. And right. And um, and so I, I I went back to it and 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 it was able, to, you know, to good new route in Alaska in the winter and then the, the Slovak and then be, you know, sort of more or less done with playing at that level because I, I mentally I couldn't do it. But then again, I couldn't get away from it. Mm-hmm. And now the list of folks is pretty pretty long. And I and some days I. You know, I, I fucking hate climbing for it. Right. Do you uh, do you pay attention to what's happening? Sometimes, like when every now and then, one of you know, one of my you know, Rolo will send me something, mm-hmm. or Scott might mention something, or I would never have seen Valley Uprising had it not been for Jason Momoa. Because <laughs> he's just like, okay. you gotta fucking see this. Anyway, um, so I, I pay attention a little bit, and and. and I mean, do you pay attention to alpine climbing in, in the sense of... Like, do I know what David Lama's done recently? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and <laughs> in the sense, again, of like, okay, well, where is it now compared to where it was when, when I... Because, well, look, yes. let, me, let me say this, that, that there's, there's some of that in, in Kiss or Kill. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, you know, I, I listened to your uh, show with Scott Backey's. You know, and there there is definitely a lot of like, well, this is the way it was then, and it it was, you know, and, and, and jokingly like it was maybe not jokingly, but yeah, it was better then. It was like more of this, more of that. But and, and and at least in the commentary in the end of Kiss or Kill was a lot of this like we've done, 
you know, the future looks bleak. Like who's going to keep doing this sort of stuff? Steve House was there, but then who comes after him? So yeah. have you kept up with it to, to kind of evaluate in your mind, well, where has it gone and has it advanced? Has it, has it stalled out? Are we still okay. fucking yeah. around? You know, I mean, what's your do, opinion on that? Or do, don't you have one? On one hand, I don't have one. On the other one, people today are way better than we were. In some ways, right? Like if I look at the at the standard, the technical climbing standard in the high mountains now, and and the speed with which guys are dispatching those pitches, that's what makes it. Like the fact that um, that uh, Tomo's son was able to climb Northridge, you know, finish essentially Northridge Latok this year, right? Like that's a technical, and those guys have technical ability far beyond. And this is something that, I mean, you know, of of anything in my climbing career that I would have changed. It's like, yeah, I probably should have spent more time rock climbing Mm -hmm. to get better because I'm fucking, you know, I'm shit. I was a shit rock climber. And I mean, I don't even have to assign a number to it. I'm fully comfortable with, you know, my inability to rock climb. Um, But that's why I had Scott. (laughs) <laughs> you know, because because it's like and, and and that was the beautiful thing about our partnership in a, in a way was like we each knew who was good at what and when it was my terrain i was in front and when it was his terrain he was in front it was very simple mm-hmm. and um but now i look at stuff and i and i realize okay the level of technical ability is a lot higher the fact of um finally you know as far as like the vision i don't know how much further you could like, I don't know that we saw any further than anybody ahead of us. And I don't think anybody else right now sees further than we did ahead necessarily. Cause it's not, I don't look at it and go like, Oh, this is a vi-, you know, sort of visionary, like, Oh my God, no one ever thought of doing that before. Because when, um, Jumbo and his crew, they climbed the ISIS face and then changed it to the Slovak direct. I mean, it's like, okay, that wasn't that many years after, you know, we did the Slovak and yeah, they were on it for six days or, you know, total for the two things but when tackle and dave stutzman did the isis face it was a fucking big deal you know mm-hmm. when that first ascent happened I, I i kind of think that when we you know we did the slovak in a single push that was a fucking big deal those guys come along and link those two roots together in an achievement like, okay, i never saw that fucking coming and so those guys were like way beyond mm-hmm. starting to see starting to look at things like you know roots on on mount logan you know something that tackle had been looking at for fucking years and those and 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 those guys went you know they're you know they they could see that and they actually had the the ability and the relationship with risk that allowed them to do it and so now i mean i look at it and i and and i I just think okay every everything is you know better than where we were and it has been an incremental build Mm-hmm. And if I, if I look back and I said, we took great leaps, you know, whatever. The only thing that changed, I think, between guys that came before me and after me is the, the fact that we actually, um, that we were, you know, some of the stuff that we were able to do was based on a higher level of physical fitness. And that came from structured training. Right. Right. And then, and, and, and combined with, you know, a very loose relationship with risk, but um, and I, and I would look back on my climbing career and it's like, and, and, and I would say like, look, I'm not, I was never a good technical climber there, there, everybody was better than me, but I was willing to die, which meant I was willing to try stuff that other people weren't willing to do, which is, right. which like, and I'm not going to, I don't want to like sort of, okay, look back in the past, but yeah, 
the reason the reality bath hasn't been repeated, it's not a technically hard route. There is a grade six pitch on it. Maybe it's only five plus now. Who fucking knows? But no one's going up there because they don't have the same, they didn't have the same relationship with, you know, with life yeah. in a way. Um, the speed record that I set on Slipstream, you know, two days before we did the reality bath. I mean, I know exactly what it is. It's two hours and four minutes. That's 30 fucking years ago. That has not been surpassed. Right. But the only reason that that happened, A, I was super, I was very fit, but I was, you know, I was willing. Mm-hmm. And that's the, you know, that that's, and, and I don't know, I don't talk to climbers now generally, but if I do, or I hear them talking or I read interviews, I don't, that there's, that's the, that was the only gift that I had is that I didn't, that I was willing to play for everything. Right. And, and, and that was, and there was an incredible liberation from that. But then when that goes away, it goes away. And if you never had it, then, then you don't see things in a, in, in maybe in the same way. Um, and now, I mean, I, I, sort of the, uh, what is the name of the peak that, uh, Conrad and Lama had tried? Is it Lunagri? Yeah, that sounds, that the name? I think that, you know, anyway, so, so David went back recently and you know, mm-hmm. he was on it by himself. Like, okay, that, some serious technical climbing and that is way fucking out there. I think that's a visionary piece. I think that some of what Uli had done was, you know, basically expressing, you know, high, high, high level of technical ability with a very high level of fitness. I mean, I think, I I, I think all of this stuff is, you know, I know my place in the, in the, in the, the, the time continuum. Right. And I would never look at it now and go, ah, it was better back in the day, right? You know, or whatever. Because, but, but on the other hand, you look at what you know, what what Killian did on Everest, and when he first, when the when the news first came, and you know, it took him twenty six hours or whatever, and and that was, I can't remember if that was twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen, but um, I just like flash back to eighty six when Erhard Lorten, Jean Troyer, and Pierre Bejan started up. They dropped Pierre Bejan. Um, because he was either unfit or, un, you know, unacclimatized, whatever. But they got to the, you know, they climbed it in 36 hours and then, you know, and, and spent whatever it was, hanging around two hours on top, something like that, hanging around, and then down and it was 43 hours round trip. So, and that's 86. And then the, the next, you know, Killian breaks the record. And like, fuck, that's not like a serious leap forward. Earhart and Jean were fucking way ahead of their time. I mean, those guys were visionary beyond... Right. You know, sort of anything and uh and then you know obviously killian must have thought the same thing because he rested a little bit and then went back and whatever it was 17 hours and and uh i'm like okay you know that's a proper right like evolution if you will a proper jump you know mm-hmm. considering considering the time interval in between technological innovation how many strong shoulders are you know you get to stand on in the in the interim and um, and so t- to me, that's like, okay, th- here, here's someone with any, you know, it, absolutely incredible fitness for one, but then also the technical ability to apply it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and it's, you know, something that maybe Uli could have done and maybe it's done faster or whatever, but, uh, then, you know, uh, nature intervened right. or the nature of things. You're living up in Salt Lake city and you know, this this town and sort of the mountaineering circles have hit 
hard times in the last couple few years with Kyle and uh, Scott Adamson. And uh, oh, let's just yeah, you know, to, uh, we can go further back. Yeah, than we that can if go you further, want, but but, but let's you know, just... the, those ones I'm sort of you know at least with Kyle connected to or privy to, yeah. and um, so as, as you again <sighs> are paying attention. And you have this experience, and and you say that's somewhat of the defining, one of the defining qualities of your climbing career is this, this idea of loss. Like, what, what effect do those, that new those stories have on you? I mean, I, I can go with Kyle because it's a it's something that's actually fairly close. Because mm-hmm. um, he and I had a you know sort of an off on relationship, and and at some point, sort of maybe. I'm just I'm just gonna say 2005 ish something we first met and he was he wanted he he knew what I was doing with Jim Jones and the fitness aspect he thought that that might be a critical piece to what he wanted to do as an alpine climber and asked me to train him and you know we talked a bit and I remember you know a couple of different conversations in this time frame and I just said dude it's not the thing you need like right now, fitness is not the, you know, is the, not the defining thing. And I think you should probably do this and, you know, get in touch with me in two years. And lo and behold, fucking two years later, Kyle called. He's like, Hey, I think I'm ready. I'm like, I don't think you're ready. And then in, uh, in April, 2015, um, I'm sitting in an airport. I'm fly- I'm on my way out to fly to fucking Atlanta, do a job. And, uh, then I get a fucking text from Kyle and, he gives me just enough information about, he gives me enough information. He's just like, look, there's some shit, really heavy shit just, you know, happened. My dad passed and, and, uh, I, I think I'm, you know, I think it's time. And I read this text and, um, like, fuck, Hey, it's time. Like I never fucking call people back. And, and so I sat and I mean, remember this very distinctly. I'm sitting just past the fucking TSA barriers and in the Salt Lake airport. And I call him back and we have this conversation. And I, I said, look, I can't, I, I'm, I gotta be gone for the next two weeks, but I'm going to come back and I will set this up and we will get you ready to go back to Pakistan. Cause they had just, um, tried the ogre too. So I set it up so that he could train at, at the gym. And I said, look, I'm going to, I mean, I will check in, but I'm going to, I, but here's, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to have, um, I want to have John free run this and he's not local in Salt Lake. So he's going to, he's willing, he's wants to come and he's going to come in and out to sort of run it. But he's, but John has a, like had an incredible sort of, he's got a hit an Alaska hit list. This is pretty fucking amazing because, um, just because of his, his situation, the, the way that technology is and the way that you can set things up now where he would do these smash and grab things in Alaska where he'd like sit and wait for a weather forecast. It's got like a bunch of different climbing partners who have relatively flexible schedules on speed dial. And I don't know how many new routes in Alaska he did in like these, you know, get time off work and go up and in like seven days round trip, they'd climb a new route in the Ruth. Mm-hmm. You know, ne- it would never be stuff where you'd have to have a high level of acclimatization because he lives in Portland. Um, and so sea level but he could go and hit these you know stay in shape and fit enough that when the weather window opened boom we're gonna we're gonna you know fly to Juneau or wherever it is or Saint, is it st petersburg you know, somewhere southeast alaska we're gonna take a helicopter into the you know the, the zone around the devil's thumb where we're gonna climb something we're gonna get the fuck out so i knew that those two guys would resonate so i kind of set that up and then um Lisa's nephew, Dylan, who was um, working in the gym and, and knew his, and was like a fantastic skier um, and ski mountaineer would do sort of the daily stuff in Salt Lake. And then I would check in every now and then. So for basically for a three month period, um, we got Kyle ready to go back. 
and um and it, it uh i i died you know i still have on my phone the fucking last sort of text exchange where you know before where i was laying into him about repel anchors about like the anchors don't get you know they can't fail maybe even citing john roskelly you know back in the day who would wouldn't jug a fixed line that he didn't set the anchor for and I'm just like, dude, anchors cannot fail. And if, and if they're put in by someone else, you never trust them. And, and just, you know, like, you know, then, then, uh, the next thing I know, I'm fucking making a contribution for, uh, you know, rescue effort, which would have been the, I guess it would have been the following year. Right. But, uh, um, the, and, and yeah, yeah, it's, it, it, it is, I mean, I can't, uh, jokingly earlier said, you know, I fucking hate climbing because it killed, you know, a bunch of my friends, but it's, it's, it's just like all, it's, it's a horrible way. It's, it's a terrible, terrible lens to look at, to look through at life of, wow, here are some of the people who are, you know, among the greatest at what they do and they're doing what they are put on earth to do. And you know that by how good they are at it. And then they're fucking, and then it's, and then they're gone. And, and I, I mean, if, if, if we could have recorded podcasts, you know, back in the fucking day or whatever, I mean, I did a bunch of interviews. I mean, the, 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 the uh, you know, the, the list of, of, of people who were important to me, who were being killed in the mountains is too, too, too fucking long. You know I mean? I, I, like I may, I kind of, made reference at some point that, you know, when Alex Lowe was number 40 on a list of dead friends and climbing partners, I killed in the mountains and, and, and I said, that's the year I stopped counting. But then it's, you know, it's Godfall Peru, it's Rod Willard. It's, you know, it's just like, it just keeps fucking happening. And like, whether you count where you pay, whether you pay attention, it doesn't matter. It is going to happen because it is, it is a, desperately chaotic and therefore high risk sort of activity. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and then by participating in it, you develop psychological characteristics that uh, of, you know, what, what, what sort of barriers, what sort of filters, what sort of distance do we have to create in order to fucking deal with this? Because it's happening all, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a year goes by when there isn't some other, you know, huge change in the landscape of the climbing community. And, and, and for me, I mean, I was maybe too emotionally sensitive to it. I mean, it's like, uh, a lot of times I only learned how to, you know, love people that I was in relationships with after they were fucking dead. And that's a pretty fucked up way to live. And I, um, and whether it's the, you know, it, it, I don't think it's specific to a community necessarily. And it was certainly, um, but, but, but it's a bit heavier here than when I was living in Chamonix and people would die, you know, it's like, oh yeah, day day. Yeah. He was, 
skiing and there's a really slow wet avalanche and he was standing at the edge of this cliff and like the weight of the snow it wasn't even like a big deal he didn't get like exploded off the cliff he just got slowly inexorably dragged by this heavy wet slow moving fucking avalanche this cliff and nobody could do anything and people were watching and he couldn't do anything to save himself and it was fucking slow motion and then he went over the cliff and then he's fucking gone but it's just another guy it's just one of 60 this year in Cham. So whatever then bring it here and it's a tighter knit community and the deaths are maybe fewer and further between and and therefore heavier were you just a do you think you were even when you were living there full-time sort of a visitor interloper in maybe you didn't you know like you didn't know their family connections and oh i mean the way you might hear no not um or was it, it you were younger? No, let, let, let's say, I'd say sort of 84 to 88. Right. Yeah, interloper. You know, for sure. I'm a tour. I'm a climbing tourist. Mm-hmm. But after being there full time and after being there, I mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, when Fred V. Mall got killed, I mean, I could spend time with him and his girlfriend. And, and, um, you know, Philippe, my climbing partner, when he got killed in Aguisanam, I mean, I, I, I knew his girl. I knew his girlfriend. I, right. you know, and knew his mom. And like, like there, there were so so the relationships. You know, later in in my sort of career there, um, for me, I mean, I was still, uh, I mean, sensitive and connected in a way. You know, I can't I can't say like, you know, look, my relationship with, uh, I mean, and for me with Kyle is touch and go. But but the but the big, the, the big part of that was like. Over, uh, we had this conversation going on for a long period of time, and I understood who he was. And that, to me, is like the bigger piece. Is is, is look, I can like even just meeting you today. I look at you. I I and, and I'm going to put their quotes up here. If you can't see, I'm just going to say I recognize you. Like I can see it. You've done it. The way that we speak, the way that we interact. You know, yeah. There's a certain climber shorthand, but. There are climbers and then there are climbers. And the fact that like I can I can look and I can recognize like okay it's experience and experiences that have changed you and and uh and that to me is a is the harder part because it's it's not just it's not necessarily the families, it's not this, it's like look, you are a a contributing, an integral part to a tribe of which I am a member by having you know been involved in the activity in a way and and that's what's the devastating thing for me is like that the that the tribe gets smaller that the collective experience and knowledge is diminished every time someone who is a part of that community and and it doesn't have to be like you don't have to be a big part of it because it's you're you're already a big part of it by having participated in the thing and sort of willfully sort of separated from other more normal kind of sport, recreational, whatever activities. And, and to me, the, 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 the only reason that I can live and do what I do now is because of the lessons that I learned in the mountains and the way that I was maybe sort of able to adapt them to other stuff. Like I can't, I can, I don't, I, 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 I'm, I don't call myself a climber anymore, but I am of climbing. Like anything that I do now, it's, 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 it is influenced, it is fed, it is fueled by that experience. And, and so when I 
realize, you know, when it's somebody who's part of that community that made me, essentially, or the experiences that the community collectively has, what influenced me and my identity, when any one of those pieces get, you know, taken off the board, um, it's, it's, it's incredibly powerful and moving. And, 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 and sometimes I probably dwell on it too much. Would you ever tell a young version of Kyle or came to you and whether it was for training or for just your Mark Twight, tell me, tell me about this. Would you ever tell him no, tell him to fuck off. Like, don't do it. Go ride a bike. No, <laughs> I mean, not my place, right? Like, I, even if I can see the logical end, you know, it's just because I know what, because <laughs> saying no is double-edged sword, right? In a, in a way, like if you'd you know, have gone, you'd have left, you'd have gone and done it. Oh fuck yeah! I yeah. mean, it's it's just like anybody who told me no, it's like I'll show you. I mean, right. like the obvious thing is no, that can't be done. <laughs> yeah, go fuck yourself. You know, or or that's not smart. Yeah, I know. <laughs> exactly why I'm going. I think it's the more you know responsible thing is to say, hey, let's sit down and examine all of these things together. Like the the are you naively accepting this risk or are you knowingly accepting this risk? You know, taking it. Mm-hmm. Like, do you know all of the pot? Have you examined all of the possible outcomes? Because I was, you know, when I was climbing, I was fucking ruthless about like forecasting the worst possible shit that could happen preparing for that in some way, whether that, you know, that doesn't mean like, Oh, I'm going to take a bolt kit because <laughs> that's not the worst thing that can happen. You know, that you can't climb the thing. No, the worst thing that can happen is something entirely different than, you know, a lack of technical ability, but say, look, you need to examine all of these things. And, uh, so that when you take the risk, you, you do so having done the due diligence in a way, but I could never, I could, I would never say no to something like I'd never like advise someone, ah, don't do that. You should, you should probably play soccer. <laughs> Golf. Golf. Yeah. Yeah. You want to make money? Golf. Yeah. I, yeah. I, you know. <laughs> Let's finish with the book. That's what, that was part of the reason I showed up. <laughs> We, we, it's like what well, we've been at this for a while, and we have to talk about this book. Yeah, pimp your shit, man. No, no, it's, <laughs> no. It's, it's not even more that. Than it's that. Like, it's, it is. Uh, it's kind of a bit more than that. Yeah. I mean, when was the last one published? Twenty years? No. Yeah, two thousand one. Okay. So, yeah. So fun. nearly. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's just call it. Yeah. Nearly twenty years ago. Yeah. So tell tell me about the book. It's it'll be out by the time I put this out. So it's out. Well, well it's out. You can you yeah. can you can buy it. You can buy it now. I mean, it got we we printed it. Um, well, in, on Monday, it'll be within the, within the last three weeks, you know, right. it's January 7th, I went to the print shop and, uh, um, it, so I've been, you know, I've been working on it on two, on this book for two years. I've been working on this book my whole life, whatever it's, um, people ask me about it. I go, they said, well, what's it about? And I said, it's about coming down. I could just end it, you know, period done. That's what it's about. And, and then, the, you know, the, the more detailed version is like every climber has to come down sooner or later. Like you can't live up there and you can't keep doing it at the level that you did it at, at a certain point. And so, and some guys, some guys try, some guys stay, 
you know, and they get, they go up there. There's guys who are, you know, and some of them are, you know, accepted a lower level of performance this that and the other thing. But ultimately, you got to come down to the valley, and 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 that can be, you know, the universal point there is like you you're coming down. You have to come down from high intensity because high intensity is unsustainable. But if you can't figure out a way to live in the valley, to find beauty in the valley, to 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 to, to accept the tr- I mean I have to say like okay the trivia that I once mocked from you know the highest mountains the trivia down here when that be- when that trivia came became my daily life I realized like I need to I need to assimilate I need to integrate down here or I'm gonna be the guy who goes out with drugs and alcohol or I go back climbing again and I don't come back which is essentially you know when uh when Escoffier died on Broad Peak uh, in I think it's '98. You know, it's just like the guy couldn't let the guy he couldn't like he couldn't be comfortable in the valley, and he couldn't let go of who he, you know the identity he was. He went back, and, and you know he's got the fused hip, and he's all fucked up. And um, we had you know talked you know, on the Arete Cosmique. I ran into him and I talked like, dude, what are you doing? It's just like I, I need to go back. I need to try and like, and, and part of it's trying to stay relevant. Part of it's trying to recover something. This, that, the other thing. But you gotta fucking come down. And if you're not comfortable down here. You're either going to go back up there and die, or you're going to become an alcoholic down here to try and sort of insulate yourself, you know, to, to figure out how to like, how, how to relate. It's the rock star thing. Sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it, uh, maybe in a way that's what it, what that is. And, um, and so I spent a bunch of time, you know, I'd have to say that, uh, you know, yeah, I quit climbing in the year 2000, but I'm, um, I'm still, I'm still a recovering climber you know in a way and 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 it took a and it took a bunch of years to to see beauty in the mundane and to sort of reintegrate and so the book itself is 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 about that journey and sort of some things learned along the way and it's not like a heavy textbook it's written it's a photo book um sort of format and um some lessons learned about you know look this is how I was able to come down and uh, and survive. I'd been rehearsing it for a while, trying to figure out like how does text included with a picture influence your relationship with the image? How does the image that you're looking at influence you know what you've just read with the text? And building these mul- you know sort of multiple experiences with one set of words or one particular image. And and uh, you know I had I had grand visions for it in the beginning, and you know or something. Oh, this is going to be a. And it turned out to be like any fucking climb. You know. You, you try it and you fail and you go down and you regroup and you try something, you know, different tactics, different route, whatever. And finally in the end, I just, I, I just realized like, look, I got, I, I, I had this idea of, of trying to involve, I just, I guess I just went back to soloing and like realized like, look, I, I fully believe in this. I'm going to fully commit to it. So, uh, after having talked with a couple of literary agents and a couple of publishers and I just realized like, look, look, this is, this is my, thing i need to get this done i need to get this out and if i believe in it i'm going to spend my own money on it if i don't believe in it i'm going to try and use someone else's money and end up with a fucking business relationship with someone that i fucking hate and they're going to try and tell me what to do and i'm not going to do it and so um so in the in the, in the end i was just like i don't want anybody to tell me what to do i want to do it my way i'm totally willing to take the risk financial and social if it sucks well, i'm going to fucking hear about it and if i you know lose the money and it's not inexpensive to like make a hard bound book and print it, you know, 
on a litho press instead of doing it digitally. And it was, I mean, through the whole process, it was an absolutely sort of incredible learning experience. And I, I don't, if somebody asked me what I do now, we publish these zines and we've got this podcast and I just, you know, I just published this book and I think I have a publishing company. Don't come to me with your book ideas. Right. <laughs> like, cause it's fucking really hard. Um, and, and, and so, and it was a, it was a fascinating thing. Cause I just, I, once I committed to, to funding it myself and putting it out there, like all of a sudden, you know, there was just like, there was a weird sort of resistance from the universe, if you will, to all of these ideas. I was like, okay, we'll do a digital version and we'll make a hundred soft covers with digital press and I'll sell those hundred books and we'll be able to fund the litho version for that. Because like, if I want to make this book, it's a 200 page, 200 page fucking book. And it's like, okay, it's going to be, you know, by all time, all is said and done, I don't know, somewhere mid $30,000 to like throw down and get that thing made. And, uh, and it's terrifying. It's like, oh, I could, wow, that's, that's a huge fucking hit right there. And, and, uh, so on January 7th, we, we started printing and I just, and I want to know everything when I do something They're like, okay, go deep. You mentioned that in the beginning. We'll just talk about that with this is that like, I decided to do a book, but that means to do a book. Like, I'm not going to, okay, I, I won't buy a printing press, <laughs> but I'm going to go as close to that as possible. Right. And, um, and so I've been, you know, I've been messing around with sort of a, this, this idea of combine, you know, of trying to, I mean, we have a t-shirt from our company, which says defend analog on the front. Cause I want to bring back, I think that print is valuable. I think when you like, you pick this pick up, one of the first things you said when you pick that up, you're just like, fuck, it's heavy. I'm like yeah, it's it's heavy in a number of ways, it but it is. Good, but it too. feels good. It it's literally like, like it feels good on your hand. Yeah, it's nice. It, exactly. Which I'm you're rubbing it right now. <laughs> but you don't get that same. Here, rub your phone. Tell me if it feels <laughs> no, the same. It you know, it doesn't feel That's the same. It's, cool. it's, it's embossed. It, yeah. it, it's an it's a neat thing. I mean, and that that embossed that that cover art. Randy Ratcliffe did it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, yeah. he and I did the reality bath together. Um, and he's and he's an amazing artist. I just wish he would go back to making art which he's which he's not right now unfortunately and and uh um th th that's a you know the, the flaming ice tool piece the, 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 the you know the flaming ice tool sort of logo has been my thing from mm -hmm. fucking 83 or 84 or something like that and uh and so he made he did it right and so it's got to be on the cover of the book um and and to, but but to make this this thing was um I just, I, so I had to learn the software to lay out a book. I had to figure out, okay, how do I, and this, and the biggest thing is like, oh, what you see on your monitor is not what you're going to see on the page. So like editing a picture in order to make it ready for print is different from making it ready for your phone or for a computer monitor. And all of these things I sort of had to learn along the way. And one of the reasons we started producing the zine was like, I need to practice. I got to do, so we got these 36 page sort of things where, that we can put out and we can see what, you know we can learn design and, and, uh, a number of guys at Ross's company, um, people, if people had heard our podcast, they will have heard of Ross, um, you know, helped us with design stuff. And like, like, I feel like I got this fucking very, very serious education. So when I went to do the book, when I went to get the, the, the you know, get the book printed at, at um, at Paragon here in Salt Lake, 
Andy who runs the place is just like, yeah, a lot of people want us to do their book and they bring us a fucking, you know, text file and some photos and they want us to lay it out. But this is the first time that anyone has come to us with the, you know, basically the full layout, like given us the PDF that we need to plug in so that we can make the signatures that, that uh, we run on the, on the press. So pretty much from start to finish all the way to the, um, uh, and, and I had, you know, great help from Chris Hamilton, who's the pre-press guy at, at, uh, at, at Paragon because, you know, I'd run up against stuff like, how do I do, like the shit I see on here, it's not translating here and this software isn't talking to this thing and what do I do? And so I got some, I, I got some good counseling, but for the most part, it was, you know, what, what I like, I like to know everything there is to, to the extent that I need to, to make something or do something. And, um, and, that, and it really is how it happened. And right now it's out of my hands cause it's at the binder um, in down in Arizona. I don't know shit about that, but, um, next book I make, I'm going to know shit about that. Cause I'm going to go as <laughs> uh, I want to learn like, well, like I want to learn all this stuff so that ultimately I can, I, I, I can do it to, to, to the extent of my potential, which is exactly sort of what I, how I approach climbing and the training thing and that stuff. It's like, I just want to know. Right. Jokingly, you know, someone mentioned nihilism. You know, when I said, started talking about coming and seeing you as yeah. Mark Twight. And I mean, I say jokingly because there was probably a big Lebowski reference in there. <laughs> at, you least know, the, at least the National Socialists had an ethos. Right. <laughs> yeah. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. All right. But uh, let me start again. Yeah. No, um, yeah. But I mean, I, I thought about that and, you know, I reread the book. We're joking about the kidney stone and all that. But it was important for me to reread it because the context of my own life had changed so much from reading, if not Kiss or Kill, but even the original pieces, yeah. which is really my first taste of it all. Like I said, the Abattoir in 1990 or 91 or 92 or whenever it came out in the actual Rock and Ice. And um, I can still picture the like gray cover, you know, somebody, two straight shafts like pinned to that piece of ice. So the... And, and I and I can't yeah there was an illustration yeah. with and I, and I and it's not John McMullen but it was another guy who did that illustration and it was yeah. yeah it was perfect for the piece for sure and I realized that like it's actually and this is my opinion and you'll you'll have to back this up or not or shoot it out of the sky but like you're it's the opposite that your your sensitivity is actually the thing that's on hyperdrive and and what I realized is that and maybe maybe Jeff Lowe realized it is that you shouldn't survive. Like what you'd been through should have should have destroyed that sensitivity or should have destroyed you as a person. I think in so many other places in life, someone as sensitive as you would have been destroyed by so many different things. So why have you survived? Like this, in this book, you know, this is just the latest thing of, I mean, this hypersensitivity to the world. Uh, am I so fucking transparent, Chris? <laughs> I, now I got to make a joke about this right, because right. I think you just stabbed me in the heart, you fucker. Um, I, 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 I won't argue with you, you know, because, you know, there is like, oh yeah, I'm a punk rock, no future, blah, blah, blah. Um, and nothing, and, and you could go down the nihilist route and say nothing has anything has any meaning, and therefore you can assign meaning to everything, um, to, to to the extent that you want to be involved with it. And um, I, I mean, I don't 
I'd, I'd have to say in a way that some of this stuff that gets done, like the collaborate zine, the one that's out of series from Ray's, that ha- like that happened. Like I was starting to feel stuff, and I was just like, okay, Michael, I, I, I can't contribute right now. I'm gonna make this thing, and over the course of whatever it was, uh, ten days, um, or so. I realized like, look, I need, I need to do this. I need to get this out. And a lot of this thing, like this book, I'm so fucking relieved that this thing is out of me now. It's, I'm happy that it's out of me because I don't have to, I don't have to live with not having done it anymore, Mm -hmm. I guess. And, and, and and I, and I, 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 yeah, I can't disagree about the sensitivity issue because I can't, you know, go, there is, it's, it would be impossible to count you know, the, you know, the nights, you know, deep into the night. Cause that's when I write, that's when the muse comes. She's a, she's a single digit on the clock bitch. And she, she don't show up before midnight and late at night. Obviously there's sometimes you get late into the night. Some of these adult beverages are involved or whatever, but I just, um, I, I can't, when she comes, when that feeling comes, I I can't argue like, and I'll just let it go. I mean, I, I I will write it. I will, you know, foster it no matter how, you know, negative it is or positive it is or sad and tragic is the feeling that comes. I will, I have to accept it because I can't, I won't survive if I suppress or reject. Like I just have to let it come. And if, and if people, and and if I would try to relate that back to climbing, I can look back after the fact and go, oh man, that was cool shit. You know, but why on one day I woke up at five in the morning, I'm like, I'm going to catch the first cable car and I'm going to solo, go solo the Major on, you know, to East Face Mont Blanc. Yeah, well, no one fucking does that from the first cable car because when the sun comes up and the face goes crazy with, falling Serax and rocks and shit like that, you'll fucking die. I got a, I, I woke up, I had that moment and I packed my shit and I got the first cable car and I went and I did it. And then later that day, I was back down in Chamonix. I was at the guide's office and go into the, the, the office of Haute Montagne and there you would go in and like contribute like root reports or whatever, like conditions and this and that. And lady's looking at me and she's and about what I'm writing and she's like, you should not put that in there. Why? She goes, because you're going to give other people permission to try and do that route from the first cable car. And they're going to fucking get killed. Oh, you're right. Okay. I, I, I accept that. This was the, th- this was the thing. I have to do the thing that gets in me. And once this idea of this book got in me, or once the idea of the zine, I mean, the very first issue of the zine happened in a real, you know, in a way where like I said, Hey, when we launch our first podcast, I want to, we won't have advertising, but I, but we got to fund it some way. So I want to make a zine. And Ross is looking at me. He's like, when can you have a draft for me? And that was on December 6th of 2017. And I said on the 15th, I'll have a draft. And in nine days, I, we, you know, Michael and I made a fucking zine. We went through 13 iterations before we went to print, but from basically acceptance of the idea to the end to, to, to going to press with it was 30 days. And, I will, if if I have the idea, like once that, once that, that, that feeling is in me, I need to take it to the logical conclusion because that is more uncomfortable for, 
for me to, to, to have that undone sort of thing. And that's not answering your question. Because <laughs> I have no fucking idea how I survived. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, like, it was rhetorical, man. It was rhetorical, but it was just an observation. And we've been at this for a long time. And I've been, I've been, you know, thinking about you for a while. I mean, you know, my whole climbing life, but particularly recently. And, uh, you know, I'm as impressed with, with your endeavors and the things you've done and accomplished aside from climbing Jim Jones, the work with the military, which we didn't get into too much. You know, you've got this biking, you know, Jones now that you do. And, uh, you know, and and so I think we're always, all of us who, who followed your career and, and again, from mythology to reality, whatever it happens to be, have been trying to unlock this idea of what makes you tick and, and maybe, try to draft on it to be honest with you and and in in my opinion was that there was just this this hypersensitivity and somehow all these things where you're shooting in all these directions were an attempt to codify modify or deal with with that let me hijack this a little bit because of that sensitivity i got to see things from places that that maybe other people didn't see and maybe they didn't were maybe they did see but they didn't learn it and and I don't want to broadcast it now from the pigeonhole of a, being a climber. I don't want to broadcast. It. I don't want to like trying to communicate from the pigeonhole of being a you know physical trainer or oh that guy's a photographer or that guy's a right you know like let's not pigeonhole things. I the the, the idea needs to be for, for me to sort of defy categorization so that the message does not get confined by context. What what has sort of proven? I mean, climbing has. Again, it it made me, and those situations in the mountains, those relationships with those people in those situations, those ideas exchanged in those moments when everyone is stripped absolutely fucking naked. Everybody knows what the other guys weak. You know, you're tied to two other dudes on these ropes, and I know exactly what their weaknesses are. I know what their strengths are. I know what they're afraid of. They know the exact same thing about me. They fucking see me. I can no longer hide here. And every thought that got exchanged in those moments that were so, that were that, 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 were that raw, um, they're human. The fact that the climbing was the means to like bring those ideas out is irrelevant because other activities, other, and it doesn't even have to be physical necessarily, but other activities can also bring out those same ideas. But the, but the beautiful part of it is, and I couldn't see it when I was climbing and I couldn't even see it 10 years after I stopped climbing, but this are, these are human experiences. Therefore, these ideas and these lessons are universal. That, that to me is an incredibly important, important thing that it's not exclusive. That it, when we say, oh yeah, that guy's a fucking rad climber and this, and he does, you know, and he's done these things and he says this, and you instantaneously create a gulf between the speaker and the listener who the listener who's not a climber who will never be in that situation. Therefore, this information is irrelevant. I get in these situations with, you know, where I've trained people for sort of these big Hollywood movies. And then those people go on that, you know, to publicize these movies and they talk about how fucking hard the training was and like the privation of the, the, the diet and this and that. I'm just like, you motherfucker, shut up. 
you're a human being and you did it. Therefore, other human beings can do it. The fact that you set it apart as something hard and difficult to attain is the exact thing that is keeping all of those other people exactly where they are. If you open this up and go, look, it was difficult, but it wasn't impossible. It was hard, but it wasn't painful. And I'm not, I don't want to be the guy who says, Hey, you can do it because you probably fucking can't, but you can try. And for me, this whole idea of whatever I'm doing now, I want to close that gap between those lessons and the people who can, you know, who, who will hear them the best, like who need them more than other people and not to set this shit on a pedestal because honestly we're human, you know, yeah, it, it was, again, it was hard, but it wasn't painful. It was difficult, but I'm a human being and I did it and you're, and we're all human and we're all just trying to fucking navigate. And that is ultimately the lesson of that book is like, I came down and it was fucking, there's no way to replace climbing. The hole in my life when I quit was vast. It's mostly filled. This is the lesson. Like it's, it's pretty, it can be really fucking good down here. If you take it, you know, if you're accepted, if you, if you like open your eyes and see it. It can be really fucking good. Come far, pilgrim. Feels like far. Were it worth the trouble? Huh? What trouble? 